The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar three times. Maybe it's time you switch to Red. And for Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome everybody to episode 259 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here with my friend Corrie Perkin. Hello, Corrie. Hello, Carol. You used to say at the very beginning, my very dear friend, have I slipped down in the rankings? Corrie, I think there's a touch of paranoia coming through at the start of the podcast, which is not a healthy beginning. Don't be ridiculous. Maybe it's my new age, now that I've caught up with you. I like to mix it up a bit. Thanks, obviously, to our show sponsors, Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy providers by CanStar three times, and Prince Wild Wine Store. We're going to see Miles soon, Corrie, and he's got some autumn treats for us, so I'm looking forward to that. Don't forget, everyone, we'd love to see you on Wednesday, the 26th of April, that's the day after Anzac Day, at our live podcast event at 5pm. It runs until 7pm, Corrie, at the Sorrento RSL. That's on the eve of the Sorrento Riders Festival. We're going to be there with lots of friends, including Anna from the Op Shop. Uh, the ticket cost, I believe, Miss Jane, is $40, and you get for that a nice drink and some finger food, and you get to meet us and um, take part in the podcast. So we'd love to see you. That's Wednesday, 26th of April. Book via the link in the show description and on our Facebook or email. Feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. There's a booking link there. Corrie, fabulous to see you. Last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the wonderful Writers Festival. Since I've seen you, I've been to Perth. You have been to Perth, Caro. Um, how was somewhere, Perth? Somewhere I don't often go to. It was beautiful, stunning weather. I went over for the wedding of a very dear family friend by the name of Caroline Ramston. It was a beautiful wedding. And I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever been to a wedding where they could have had more perfect weather. Just think still autumn night by the banks of the Swan River at a sailing club, people fishing and walking their dogs as we sat in the in a glittering little marquee by a very lovely, not a smart royal sort of yacht club, but a, just a beautiful um, sailing sailing club, I guess, by the, by I said, the, the banks of the Swan, a beautiful moon. A Thursday night. A Thursday night. Interesting for a wedding. Oh, well, I've, every wedding I've been to lately has been... Most mm. of the weddings I've been to lately have been on a Thursday or a Wednesday. I think po- I think post lockdowns, everybody's just booked up to the gazoo, so there. And but the, I think and a we- I think a Thursday or a Friday night wedding is absolutely fantastic. Well, the recovery was on a Friday, and as you know, Caroline is the daughter of probably my oldest friend in the world, certainly oldest male friend Michael, and our dear friend and um, a great friend of the podcast, Kathy Ramston, who's no longer with us who we love dearly and who loved both of us. And I'm just, um, it was so, it was a poignant event, but it was so beautiful and it was so happy and so much, many family and friends. And Perth is not somewhere we go very often. I mean, I think your brother lived in Perth for some time and you famously never visited him. I've he, still never been to Perth. Which he, rem- that's but shocking. I, I know, but Lindsay, Lindsay, our great, uh, our great potty in Perth. Hi, Linz. Um, Lindsay is trying to get me over there with... Jane Lamo, Jane Lamerton, the two of us over there for a, a long weekend. So I hope that we're going to do that this year. That would be really fun. But no, I've never been to Perth. So I'm listening with 
enormous interest. Oh, we caught up with um, Brendan's beautiful brother, Mark, and his partner, another Caroline, who makes the most beautiful beauty products called Caroline's This or Caroline's That. Um, if you get them online, they're absolutely wonderful. But anyway, we had lunch with them, wandered around the streets of Perth, stayed in a city where I've never normally stayed before, and it's all been really revved up, Perth. They've redone all the old treasury area, the old fire station, um, look, it, it's just absolute government house, the gardens down by the river. It was just a really lovely. And, you know, you, you sort of dread the flight, but it's actually pretty easy. Did, did you go and visit any Weagles or Frio footy types? No, I steered clear of the footy connection, although our hotel had a lovely view of the um, Optus Stadium where the siren may or may not have sounded in time <laughs> to save the game for Fremantle. Oh, if only you'd been there on that day and watched later, that. Later you in the You weekend. could have fed in like everybody else in Victorian media has uh, over that issue. Caro, we've and had... you had a birthday. I did have a birthday, yes, I did. It was I, I was explaining to one of my grandchildren, uh, Hattie, uh, this was a non-birthday party year for her and she was lamenting the fact that why do you only have a birthday party every second or third year? What did that actually mean? Because, of course, we had the massive fairy party last year. And I explained to her that some years you, you just can't have a party every year, Caro, and this was my year. But I did by about 3 p.m. in the afternoon I had the complete sulks because <laughs> nothing was happening, thinking, oh, I wish it was a party year. I know how Hattie feels now. But uh, it was quite dramatic in the end because I had a call from my husband, Pete, who had um, – had had a bit of an issue with his leg and spoken to me that morning. He was in Melbourne on business and said, you know, my leg's feeling a bit hot. And I said, well, it's infected. Duh. Go and see a doctor. So he goes to a doctor. The doctor says, you have wood in your leg after they'd done some tests. Wood? Wood. And the following, so, and then the following day, he was booked into for surgery in hospital the following day. And what had happened a few days earlier, he had been working in the garden and tidying up a whole lot of tea tree and a piece of tea tree apparently gouged his leg. He said to me when it happened and it was blood everywhere, he said I was a bit of a scratch, but he actually confessed that he'd pulled, he'd, he'd, he'd speared himself in the leg, in the, in the calf muscle. In a tea tree? By, at a, yeah, with a tea tree? With, and pulled out this piece of, this loose piece of tea tree that was stuck into his leg. It really does sound like something from Game of Thrones. So, so he pulled it out and thought not a lot about it, even though it bled and bled. But didn't tell me that it had pierced the skin because, of course, me being a nurse, <clears throat> not really, but um, I would have said, you know, dirt, be careful, we need to have it looked at. So, of course, I the whole thing I don't mean to be rude, up. but you are many things. I'm not a nurse. No. But I'm also not very sympathetic. My children will testify. I, whenever, when there's a scratch or an illness or a complaint, I just say, come on, get on with it, you know. Get out the door. So Pete said, look, I'm not sure I can come down for your birthday. We better cancel dinner because uh, my leg, I have to go to hospital. Anyway, he did come down for dinner, but he had to have his leg raised all night. So we couldn't go to our favourite um, beautiful restaurant that we love in Sorrento. So our friends Anna and Peter felt sorry for us and they had us around for a takeaway lasagna, which was just as much fun. But Pete had to sit there with his leg up and then the next day went back and had it um, opened up and they found five little tiny pieces of timber in his leg. Five. Gee, that thank, thank heavens he went to the doctor because the more infected that could have got, something dreadful could have happened. Well, he's been complaining about his golf game and he said, oh, I won't be able to play golf. I said, well, you're lucky you've got a leg. So, you know, that's all right. Anyway, so the birthday was a bit of a fizzer, but Miles's mixed dozen, which we're going to mention a couple of highlights of later on, were, uh, were smashing and you were there for a Sunday lunch to share 
one of them with me. Carol, we've had a little bit of correspondence. I just wanted to thank um, one of our potties, Sally Watson, who sent this um, cartoon from the New Yorker magazine to me. And it, it has three coats. I'm showing it to you. There are three coats in a row. One has a label, the winter coat. One has a label, the summer jacket. The third one says, which is that little one there. Not transseasonal. Coat you can wear only one day a year in spring when it is sunny but not hot, not even warm really, about (laughs) 57.2 degrees Fahrenheit exactly. Yeah, you probably shouldn't have bought this coat. Thank you. transseasonal coat. Sally, for feeding into the long time debate about should you buy a seasonal coat and waste your money. A vote for Corrie. Thanks to Catherine via Instagram who loved our episode and really enjoyed my review of the Alexander McQueen exhibition. Truly agree it ouch on the Chanel exhibition. Look, it it was certainly very different and has been even more heavily subscribed. Um, Seeing the combination of Alexander's couture incredible headpieces and our own NGV permanent exhibit pieces come together with such homage to his work was brilliant. Bravo, NGV. Still time to go and see it, Corrie, if you get an opportunity. It's really good. Um, Just to remind everyone, we're not doing a Don't Shoot the Messenger footy tipping competition this year, but you can tip... Uh, you can go through SEN, Miss Jane. Is that correct? And take part. We have had a listener who's actually organised a fan competition. Oh. Oh, <laughs> what a loyal soul. Thank you to that Lisa on Instagram. So letting everyone know she requests of the tipping comp for fans, the SEN uh, tipping competition, and the code is 4NLEU. 54F. I'm going to put that in the show notes or if you subscribe to our weekly email, we'll give you the details or send me an email and I'll let you know how to join. Corrie, as we sit here today, we're in the unusual and I think pretty concerning position where not one mainland state of Australia has any other government apart from Labor. And of course, we have a federal Labor government as well. Um, this took place after the weekend when Dominic Perrottet was beaten. We don't know yet um, as we sit here, time code, as they say on that other podcast on a Tuesday morning, whether Chris Minns is going to rule with a majority, but we certainly know he's the new Labor Premier of New South Wales. Look, um, the thing that really, before we go on to the political situation in Australia, it was extraordinary, those two speeches, weren't they? How gracious both the loser and the winner were. And for Dominic Perrottet to tell people from New South Wales to get around Chris Minns and to say he thought he was going to be a good Premier and for Chris Minns too to thank Dominic Perrottet and both to mention what a gracious relatively campaign it has been was very unusual. Mm, It was like the chipmunks, after you, no, after you, after (laughs) you. Carol, I was uh, really impressed as well with Dominic Perrottet's speech. I particularly liked it when he said... uh, He felt the campaign was a genuine battle of ideas and that's when politics is at its best. And I agree with him. I thought it was. I I didn't weigh in too much to the New South Wales election campaign. Uh, Did follow a bit of it, obviously, the other night with interest. But I thought his speech was gracious. Uh, He he did wish New South Wales well. He wished his successor well. He paid tribute to those previous Liberal premier, Premiers, Barry O'Farrell, Mike Baird, Gladys Berejiklian, which I think was a really fine thing to do. Um, Min's, Min's speech, I felt, was a bit wooden, a bit predictable, but that's, I guess, maybe he was overwhelmed. Maybe he's a bit wet, between, wet behind the ears with media performances. I'm not sure. 
But um, yeah, it was a very interesting result, as you say. I wouldn't have thought he'd be wet behind the ears, standing to be state premier. No, but it, but that, that, that I think there's a lot of emotion on election night, and I think it it yep. throws a curveball to even the most seasoned performer. If you haven't done one before, uh, it's it, I, I think it's it's quite emotional, and can you, can you can be quite overcome. He did look a little bit at times like the deer with the headlights in his eyes. But you're absolutely right about this concerning situation. Is it good for democracy? Absolutely not. Because of course, a good government, a great government, is one where it's tested every single day by by a vigorous and intelligent opposition. And um, I can't see that happening. Maybe New South Wales in Victoria, what what a mess at the moment the Libs are in. So I think you do need, um, you do need to, as Don Ship would say, keep the bastards honest. Yeah, I think the, the other thing is, is that, you know, the concern for the Liberal Party is they just can't seem to quite agree which direction they should be going in. But what everyone seems to agree is that there has to be a new direction. Now, is that to the right? Is that to the middle? Is it a teal direction? Do the teals at some point get together and form their own government? Um, the Greens are never going to be a majority party. They're always going to be an important party. Um, apropos the, the deal that <clears throat> was done just in the last few days with Anthony Albanese um, over climate change. But I, I think it's a real concern. I, I think the, the Liberal membership in Victoria is so way down. And, um, you know, they, they started with a new leader who um, made all the right noises, John Pesuto, but he's just had a terrible defeat um, when he tried to kick Moira Deeming out of the Liberal Party. Um, Don't you wish you were a fly on the wall at that party meeting on Monday morning? Well, you know, he, he came out and said that, you know, she'd condemned the meeting and the people at that meeting that she'd attended. She's now come out with a tweet just before he went on the 7.30 report on Monday night and said she never did any such thing. So she's been suspended. I mean, she's literally been sent to the naughty corner. I think in the meeting she talked a lot about her personal battles and the personal obstacles she's had to overcome, became very emotional. So in the end, it's a defeat per, for Pesuto, who said he had to go. Mm. And, so and, he, and, and, you know, he showed, his, uh, he showed his weakness there by not actually doing the numbers before, you know, taking a vote on it. Uh, Graham Richardson, the old toe cutter from the Labor Party, would say, don't ever ask for a vote until you know the result. So he clearly thought that every all his colleagues were going to vote with him. Well, I had some sympathy her. for him because I think he was doing the right thing. But his party has beaten him. So, no, it's a, it's a dreadful situation for them. And I think um, – I don't know where Peter Dutton goes now, but I haven't really enjoyed his – and I know there's a lot of emotion around the um, referendum coming up on the voice to parliament, the Indigenous voice. But I'm, I'm Peter Dutton seems to me to be contributing not a lot to that debate and certainly not nothing constructive. He has to work out pretty quickly what direction he's going to take the party, don't you think? I think so. So, look, uh, uh, politics, I don't know what to say about it except to say that we've got Tasmania and Premier Rockcliffe is the only Liberal Premier in the country and there's not an election there for another two years. So there's no reason to, to say that he's going to lose the premiership there if, in, if indeed he wants to keep it. But yeah, it's um, it's not good for democracy and it seems to be a, a bit of a bit of concern. Look, in the end, I, I just think we all want a good opposition. And, oh, you totally. Of and, course uh, you do. And at the moment, 
they haven't got a leg to stand on. Well, you also don't want your Labor Party, whether it's federal or state, to become complacent. That's the last thing you want when they think that they they can rest on laurels, that they can take their eye off the ball. How many cliches can I use here, Corey? But you don't want a you don't want uh, a government that is is arrogant. Do you think Dominic Perrottet was lethally, fatally wounded by the Nazi uniform story? We talked about that at the time, didn't we? I think time passed on from that. I think that was last year's news cycle to some extent for me. I don't know. What do you think? I don't think it, certainly don't think it helped. No. I, I, think, I, think, I, think I mean, was, I thought his response was as good, of, good as it could have been, but. I think it was more about not giving pay rises to you, to your service workers and you, and you, you people in the, in the front line, particularly during COVID and lockdown, nurses, teachers, ambulance workers, um, not being tough and hard when they're asking for a pay rise. And then of course, as a result, you have industrial disputes. That's not a good look. And in the end, he, you know, he stumbled in, well, didn't stumble into the job, but he took on the job after the corruption inquiry. So he hadn't actually been ever really given a mandate by the electorate. Anyway, that's, it's going to be a, a really interesting watch. I'm not sure if it's ever happened before, but it doesn't seem to be a healthy situation for me. And welcome everyone to the Cocktail Cabinet, brought to us by Prince Wine Store. And welcome Miles Thompson, who's in the studio with goodies. Yes, always good to be here. And with goodies, even better to be here. So um, we were talking earlier about Corrie's birthday and the wonderful mm. birthday dozen that we made a very big dent in the oh, other good. day. Did the we make d- a very big dent? That makes us sound like real... We had a week. Alcoholics. Yeah, first of all, well, it I wasn't wanna... only... We should preface this by people, saying right? it was a casual lunch yeah. and there was oh. more than just no, you that, and I. No, that's right. And Carol and I want to talk about the one of the Sicilian whites that we both tried over lunch. But first of all, I would like you to tell potties... Well, I would like to tell potties about the incredible champagne you talked my husband Peter into buying because he came to pick up Corey's Mixed Dozen. Yeah. And what was it? And Carol, seriously... Along with Perrier Jouet, I think I have found my French champagne. I think it was... That's a tautology, Corrie. I, I know. As I said it, I paused then. My champagne. <laughs> uh, Verfoni is the one I think I, I Correct. got for you. Yeah, it's actually bought in by De Bordoli. And I know I've talked about De Bordoli a few times, but they, they bring... I don't know if they bring in anything else, but they certainly bring in this. And we saw it many years ago for the champagne event and thought it was really good then. And we've bought pallets of it since. And yeah, we think it's just really great value for what it is. And really? Just a really lovely sort of... Really mid, smooth. Yeah, mid, like mid-weight sort of style champagne. Yeah. It's not in that really sort of powerful like Krug or Bollinger sort of style. When but you it's feel not your, that nose super is, light your, your nose is getting to blow off. Yeah, that's right. They're really so full can, on. You and can buy this online with the M-E-S-S code or you can go into Prince Wine Store in South Melbourne and buy it. We generally have it in stock. Is it rude for me to ask how much Peter spent on my champagne bottle? Yes, but tell me. Well, I gave him a special discount. Oh, did you? I think it was... $85 in the end. Oh, that is, which I is think really that's great value. Really good value. Yeah, especially these days with champagne. Oh, Na- name of that's probably about what it would be normally. I think we just, we, the way we'd price it was a bit odd. So, anyway, so it probably works out to probably about $90 on the shelf normally, I would say. Name of the champagne again? Verve Forney, like V E U V E and Forney, F O U R N Y. And Very it's the, I think it's the premier crew. They have a Blanc de Blanc, which is all Chardonnay, the, and then the, the, this other, is the premier crew. The other one, Carol and I, we actually tr- stood on the 
we stood at the kitchen bench together and took a photo to tell you about how much we loved the Lucifer, yeah, the Bianco Terra from Siciliano, and that's Sicilia, the one I talked about Sicily. I think, on the episode. You did, you yeah. Did. That we we talk about it being the, like these these wines from Etna in particular, these whites being kind of like the Chablis of the South, and it def- definitely has that really. You know, you think Etna's got that really sort of mineral rich soils, and it sort of comes through, and the wines have got this lovely sort of vein of minerality. And a lovely crunchy sort of citrus sea spray, salty thing that's, yeah, really fantastic. Still lovely fruit on it as well. Really great. that really like clean sort of mineral and, style. And we had a glass of it, didn't we, Caro, before lunch, which we thought was absolutely yeah. perfect, everybody. Yeah, it's a great wine. We're, we're really, we like it a lot. So. Mm. And that costs, I enjoyed it. what does that cost again? Maybe $40, $40 yeah, or something. I think that it's was not super it. expensive. A lot cheaper than Chablis these days. It, that that is true. Yeah. Now, Miles, tell us what you've come to talk about today. Oh, well, I've got th- I've got three things. Um, I've got some autumn drinking, just some some a wider red. As opposed to when we do it <laughs> for the rest of the year. Yeah. Autumn drinking is different to spring and oh, summer and it? winter it drinking. Oh, oh, is it, things, Caroline? What do you do in autumn? Well, you things, pledge things pledge yourself weight. in a leaf I coat. Think, yeah, why not? I sort of think cooler weather, and we're we're sitting yeah. on a cooler day today. Absolutely. I'm thinking starting to light the fire again. I'm thinking looking at your jumpers again. Yeah, for sure. Autumnal colours. Cooking with pears and figs. Yep, exactly, and quince, that sort of thing. Yep. What are we drinking with all these things? So first thing I thought I'd go, Aussie icon, Tabilk Marsan. Oh, Um, my Lord, that takes me back. Yeah, but it's such a great wine. I was just sort of, you know, they have some of the oldest and the largest plantings of Marsan in the world, which is pretty incredible. So it's sort of from France, that grape originally, and it has this lovely weight about it. It's got a richness to it. Still still keeps really fresh. So it's like a, I guess, if you want to compare it to maybe an, an unoaked Chardonnay, but it has a bit more of a kind of ripe yellow fruit sort of thing going on rather than that kind of like citrus apple thing that you get with a lot of Chardonnay. So a little bit more sort of like riper fruit spectrum still with lovely freshness and a bit of extra weight in the palate. It's got a bit of richness and palate weight unoaked. And look, you know, it's it's kind of an icon for a reason because it's not expensive, $18 a bottle from Prince Winesaw, and um, it's just fantastic. It's just such a good wine, and it's great every year. It's probably one of the most consistent wines in Australia, I'd say. I remember and I we went, love it I too. You to... know, it's it's something you see in Dan's and all the places, but it's a wine that we love having anyway. You don't just, see just, it often enough. And at, at, our, the, yeah. at our event, you know, late last year, which we had at Prince Winesaw, I think that was one of the wines we tasted. Yeah, and it oh, went it off. Been too. Yeah. yeah, it went off. There, there are photographs. There are photographs of me at the age of eight. For some reason, the family went to Shepparton on a holiday. Mm. Doesn't sound so exciting these days. It was then, <laughs> and um, we went to Shadow to Bilk so my father could um, buy some wine. But we, I don't think they did sell it all then. But we, had, we were given a tour. So there's photographs of me underground in oh, very, cool. very old. Yeah, I thought um, they were going to say there were photographs old. of you drinking Shadow to Bilk myself. <laughs> Yeah. Could be. Well, we were very advanced. <laughs> and ages very well too. That's the other thing. Yep. Yep. Like my, my for that price, you could put it down for five 10, years. But, <laughs> nice. Um, and good, 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 and so, good, can, can I? Do, can we good, just cut to the chase? Wine. What is this incredibly luscious-looking drop right. that you have in front of us here today? So, so I've got another red, but also this is a. It's called a. It's a mistel is the type of drink, which is basically just a, a, a fruit juice, essentially uh, fortified with. Usually, usually brandy in, in France. Um, this is actually fortified with Calvados, um, and, it, and it's an apple juice, and it's from Eric Bordelais, who's this kind of legendary cider producer, um, and he does this with – it's a combo of 
bitter apples, sweet apples, some acidic apples. He's he's kind of he's obsessed with apples like people are with grapes. So he's really sort of top notch uh, producer in that regards. You know, he's he's you know makes some single varietal ciders and things like that. But this is his Mistel. So it's a it's essentially an apple juice crushed and then sort of it starts to ferment a little bit and then they stop the fermenting by adding the Calvados to it. Jane, so it's kind Jane of sweet, Caro and tart. I are, are salivating. Mm. If you don't pour us a little sure, drop of that sure. soon, we're going to scream. Um, so, it's a beautiful so bottle. To our potties, Maybe what, even what would, would you describe it as a sarsaparilla kind of colour, um, Caro? Pretty creamy think, soda sort of colour? Well, like I, th- I, I think Calvados is, is the right um, description. I went. To, I travelled through Normandy one year, Miles, with my mother and one of my best school friends, Nikki. And Nikki's father, Italian, wonderful Italian doctor by the name of Vincenzo, no longer with us, loved Calvados. And at every town and village, Nikki bought him another little bottle of Calvados Very because good. that's where it sort of originates from. Absolutely. Isn't it? And yeah. it was. The, I still remember. We're back in the eighties. Absolutely beautiful little bottles of Calvados. Cheers. Oh, <laughs> here we go. Let's it's open the with the sound cabinet. effects. Miles and Miles, how much does this cost? So six sixty-five dollars, I think oh, it is on the shelf. Wow. And at yeah, what point it, of the day do we normally drink it? In the morning. <laughs> I, hope, in, I, in hope your you, I hope you have television tonight. Um, You're going to be very controversial on yeah, that panel well, of yours. This well, we do this delicious. hazelnut. We do this hazelnut cake at Bellotta, and I think it would be sort of perfect with that, like hazelnut and that sweet, that sweet, sweet tart kind of. Yeah, it's got that bruised kind of apple funkiness on the nose, but comes off really like sweet and very, and, very and, cool. And hot or peppery or um, on the back palate. Little I don't know. How, yeah, I wouldn't say pepper, but it's, yeah, it's quite. It hits you. It's beautiful. Could you have it? Would you have it after a meal as well? Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously perfect. with a with a pudding. Of yeah, I think or. after a meal or. Yeah. You can intravenous strip it if you want to. Absolutely delicious. <laughs> beautiful. And what's the red? You'd probably miles? chill it, but I just. No, I think, Carol, I think actually, it's nice for room temperature. Dare I say nice um, lemon cordial bottle? I was, don't worry, yeah. I was thinking that. But I'd have, or if you, we've got a fair way to go through to finish that bottle. You can make it, you know, you can make an, you can make an awesome glaze out of it too if you're going to make a yeah. sort of tart tartan I was just like going that. to say, drink it with a tart tartan. It's already got that sugar in it, so it'll, it'll. And thicken hazelnut and cake, caramelized. quince tart. Yeah, remember, tart. Anything, yeah. remember that super easy recipe the other week I did of Jamie, Four, uh, Jamie Oliver's with the, um, with the with the ice cream and the coffee oh, on the top, yeah, that you would could actually do. pour. Yeah, thank you, Africado. That would be oh, delicious. And finally, yeah. a red Miles. Yeah, and a red can't you know have to have a red, of course. So La Dama Vini is the producer, and it's a Valpolicella Rapasso. So Valpolicella up in that sort of Verona region. We just did a tasting uh, a couple of weeks ago. So this was the hit at that tasting. Um, this producer makes a kind of light style in generally speaking. So what the Rapasso does is. It takes the Amarone, which is the dried grape wine. So they dry the grapes for Amarone, kind of rich, almost just a touch of sweetness. And what they do is they take the finished dried grapes from that fermentation and they put it back to the fermentation of the of the Rapasso wine. And it takes on a bit of tannin and colour and richness. Because often those Valpolicella wines, they're quite forward, crunchy, sort of red-fruited, raspberry, spicy sort of things. They're really, really lovely. And this just adds an, adds an extra sort of depth of, of texture and weight. It adds some tannin and some bite to it. And this has got this lovely sort of like camphor sort of spice on it and black and sort of red fruits that really lovely. It's a beautiful colour. Yeah, it's just, it. it's just lovely. And it just sits in that lovely sort of 
mid-weight style. It's not a heavy wine, but, is it, but it's starting to get some of that spicy sort of autumnal thing. So, you know, pretty sort of versatile. It's not a big wine, but it's certainly not a light wine either. So it sits in that nice, yeah, I thought it was the perfect sort of autumn wine. And Quanta Costa? Uh, f- I think that's 44 and Valpolicella, and the name again? Rapasso. Rapasso. So is the method. And you'll see it on the label. Any Anyone who does it will put it on the label. So usually they're straight Valpolicella wines, and then they add back in that Amarone to make I've, a slightly I've, richer style. I've finished. Miles, that is yeah, the good. most wonderful my, recommendation. Because I need to take the glasses My glasses back. empty. <laughs> oh, I thought you might just say we don't know. I can't have another one. That was delicious, Miles. I'm going to take it back to Bellotta and they can pour it, so... That was a cocktail cabinet, thanks to Prince Wine Store. And remember to use the promo code MEWS, that's short for Messenger, at checkout online or in store at Bank Street, South Melbourne. Thank you, Miles. Lovely to see you. Thank you. Okay, Corrie, now thanks to Red Energy, we're going to switch to my favourite segment, B, S and F. I am going to kick it off with a book before we move on to a screen, which in fact is based on a book. Can I just say I've never imagined you as a Natasha Lester kind of girl? I'd never really heard of Natasha Lester, maybe somewhere in, you know, the deep recesses of my mind, but obviously I'd heard of The Paris Seamstress, which I think is her best-known novel. A lot of her novels have the word Paris in it, and a lot of them are based in France. He writes sort of historic fiction, but usually he blends the old with the new. And in the case of the book I'm about to review for you, and I really enjoyed it, I've got to say, you need a good, easy read on the plane trip to Perth. And this is called The Riviera House. Um, Natasha Lester, interestingly... Can I just... You you do know why publishers put Paris in the title, don't you? Yeah, it sells. People buy books. And and, And it's actually... They've admitted. And I think when you read The Riviera House too, you think... But in fact, this is the story. And Mum lent me this book and said, look... You know, it's a bit of a, you know, it's a bit light in some parts and it, there's a, you know, there's a fairly trashy romance and Natasha is a bit heavy sometimes on the purple prose. But this is a great story because it's a story and we've seen it in film and read about it before, about the theft of brilliant artworks by the Nazis during World War Two, And that's what the story is actually about. And it's a beautiful romanticised story, but there are real characters in this book who, who are, you know, true to life. And one of them is Rose Valland, who actually wrote a memoir, Le Front de l'Art, which is um, a, a book she wrote only available in French. And I think Natasha Lester had to really brush up on her French to read this book. But she was was a true hero who spied upon the Germans and worked at the Hue de Pomme, which is where all the artworks from the Louvre were taken and then exported... I mean, the Rothschild family and the works the Nazis stole from that one particular Jewish family in its singularity was just so scandalous and so dreadful. And it seems, and they make this point in the book, you know, when you look at all the other things the Nazis did to talk about the atrocity of stealing art isn't much, but it does examine why art is so important. And um, the the heroine of this book, I think, is is a made-up character, but I think she, and her name is Eliane, and she goes to work with Rose at the Hure de Pomme and becomes a major part in saving works from, you know, basically the Mona Lisa onwards. And um, it involves one particular painting that may or may not have been painted by her brother, who in the end becomes a spy like Eliane 
for the resistance movement in Paris. And it's, it beautifully describes life in resistance Paris. It beautifully describes what it was like, the fear of working and trying to get on with Nazi bosses and the sort of battle between Goering and Hitler, who were both obsessed by art and wanted it all for themselves. And then it fast forwards to the present day and the French Riviera, Riviera where um, a woman by the name of Remy escapes to a, a, a mysterious house. You don't quite know how how she's come upon this house to sort of get away from a terrible grief, um, a terrible tragedy that has befallen her own life in which she's lost her husband and child. So Remy's link to Eliane becomes more and more apparent as the novel goes on. It flashes forward and back. It's a great read. It um, carries a very important message. Bit purple, as I said, on the prose, but I What's really... What's the important message? Don't steal art that doesn't belong to you. Well, no, I, th- I think it's about why art is... It seems to be flippant and frivolous to examine war, the war theft of great art when you talk about, you know, the extermination of, an in, you know, how six million Jews. But it, it was important for other reasons and it talks about why it's so important to save art and what it actually means. And, you know, it's set in Paris during World War Two, which was a fascinating and dreadful time and, you know, the divisions the Vichy French, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Oh. Got a, lot, a lot of fashion in it too, Corrie. Would you, would you be reading another Natasha Lester? If I, I probably wouldn't go out and buy one unless someone lent it to me, but, yeah, I would. And I, I really, look, I really quite enjoyed this. She's a great storyteller. It's her, a cracking her cover, read. Her covers always have photographs of wistful-looking women, and I just wonder whether that sort of almost like a Mills and Boone, upmarket Mills and Boone treatment. I often wonder whether they're doing the right thing by the author. Well, Because rem- the, the stories do have meat on them. There's no doubt about that. But it always, they always no, just the, look like the, they should be in the romance section. The women are, are, are cut above the Rosamund Pilcher women. And Remy, in fact, the modern-day character who is undergoing this terrible grief, the only thing that's kept her going is her vintage fashion business that she started called Remy's Closet. And there's descriptions, very, as I said, very purply prose of these unbelievable vintage outfits she wears and sells. And it's actually... Um, it's actually quite an interesting side story if you're interested in fashion. So, look, yeah, I would recommend The Riviera House. Mum enjoyed it too, and she's a hard taskmaster. Now, you've watched a great new show, mm. you say, on mm. SBS On Demand for our screen this week. Mm, two parts. So I watched Saturday night and then Sunday night. And when I saw you on Sunday morning after the Saturday night, I did declare it one of the best streaming um, programs that I had seen in a couple of years. I would actually wheel that back a bit after watching the second episode. It didn't quite live up to the enormous expectation of the first. But having said that, Mayflies on SBS On Demand is absolutely 100% one of the highlights of my viewing year and you all must watch it. So it's based on the novel uh, that came out maybe about six or seven years ago by Andrew O'Hagan, which you reviewed on this podcast, Carol. Brilliant I'm novel. interested to know, uh, just recapture your thoughts on that in a second. But it's the story of Tully and Jimmy, who were uh, in their late teens in uh, the 1980s uh, when they first met and became friends. And it's the story of their 30-year friendship. And they're both living a um, a rather sort of lower middle, lower class, lower middle class, working class uh, town in Scotland, and Tully is so smart and so brilliant and loves words and literature, 
and actually is um, pushes himself um, to to get uh, great marks off to university with Jimmy's blessing, who's left in the town. But they remain friends, and Tully is frequently referring to Jimmy as Noodles. You might be able to tell me why his nickname's Noodles. It never was clear. But Noodles receives uh, is, is giving a dissertation at a bookshop one evening in London where he lives with his, new, with his partner and he receives a text message from Tully up north saying, um, Noodles, I need you. You've got to come and see me. And it turns out, this is not giving anything away, folks, that Tully has um, just been given a terrible terminal cancer diagnosis and he is refusing treatment and he wants to go to Switzerland to die on his own terms. Now, And he wants Noodles to help him. And so there's back and forward and the first episode of this is stunning the way we enter into the relationship, how they first met one another, going back and forward. Um, well, one became almost a part of the other one's family because of his own right. pretty bleak family yeah. situation. Jimmy, Jimmy had a terrible, which we don't see a lot of that backstory, which is a bit of a disappointment. But we just know that Jimmy had, wants nothing to do with his family. And as soon as he can, he wants to escape. He has, a, as is often the case, a brilliant English teacher who encourages him and just says, get out of here. Get the mark, study hard and get out of here, leave. And Tully encourages his friend as well to do this. Tully's family, or his mother certainly, house full of love, a lovely sister, a troubled father. Um, and um, it was never clear to me what Tully actually did. Did you know what Tully did for a living? It's been a long time since I read it, yeah, but he, he never really he never really kicked on career-wise. No. The, I, way, the way Jimmy did. But yet, was he a teacher? I can't remember. I th- it might have been a teacher, but that was skipped over because we were really in the moment when we came to present day, which was him um, dealing with this, um, with with the treatment and 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 not wanting treatment, and of course, Anna, um, who his, who's his longtime partner, who he uh, proposes to. And so the wedding is a bit of a high point in this um, otherwise rather sad story. Um, I want to talk to you about the book, but I just wanted to say at the very beginning of this discussion, um, if you are if you are going through any sort of cancer cancer treatment or if you've just recently lost somebody, this would be a very, very difficult program for you to watch. So I think you just have to be very mindful of that. I was weeping, Caro, and my dear friend Scott, who um, is a former bookshop colleague, he put me onto this. He has great taste in in books and screens and things, and um, and he he loved this show and recommended it to Deb and I. And I I was just beside myself after the first episode with with um, grief. A, a little less so after the, the second show. So I would just be say uh, let the buyer beware on that one. But what did you think of Mayflies the book? Well, if you remember, I I said it was one of the best books I'd read in that particular year. I reckon it was probably 2018 or 19. It was given to me by our friend Sal as a Chris Kringle at our book club. She had never read it but thought it looked great and thought I'd love it. And she was so right. Um, The the other really uplifting, brilliant part of the novel is when they go as young boys, as teenagers, with their gang of friends to a music festival in Manchester. And this was set around the time that I lived in the UK, where I lived in the UK between 1983 and 1986. And... I think this is 1986 that they meet and they go go to the festival. And all the bands 
you know, about a real bands that you know. What they get up to is complete, they're complete reprobates. It's so funny. It is so brilliantly written by Andrew O'Hagan, the way he describes this group of kids and what they get up to at this music festival, which is absolutely no good. But very, very funny and something I could really relate to. The family situation is a lot more um, part of the novel, certainly the first half of the novel. It's almost a novel in two parts ending with the music festival and then fast forward to the present day. It's a bit of back and forward when he gets the call and they get together again. They've always kept in touch. Well, the, the, the screen version, they go back in time reminiscing and they do it rather beautifully. And the actors who play the younger Talia Noodles <laughs> bizarrely look so much like. I have to say, Caro, I have to co- um, comment on a couple of acting performances here. So Jimmy, or Noodles, who's the writer, the London writer, the successful writer, who comes home to look after his dear friend, is played by Martin Comston. Now, do you know where we've seen Martin Comston? And during lockdown, we saw an awful lot of him. You're going to tell me. Line of Duty. Oh, which one? He plays he? Inspector Steve Arnott. He plays the main character. Oh, with the dark hair. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Um, and um, and Tony Curran, who's a Scottish actor who's been in a few things, including uh, Doctor Who, he plays Tully. But the other performance that I wanted to mention was Ashley Jensen, who plays Anna, who is the uh, incredibly brave and sassy lawyer, um, newly wed- newly wedded um, bride of um, of the dying Tully. And Ashley Jensen, I, for the first 20 minutes, I was thinking, my God, where have I seen you? I couldn't even think. She is a, um, uh, um, Agatha Raisin. Oh, she's also in... After- Which I actually love, Agatha Raisin. Yeah, in, in that brilliant show, um, Afterlife too. She yeah. plays one of the main characters that's in that. That's right. That's right. So it's a really, really interesting cast. Uh, well worth it. But as I said, just um, just beware of um, uh, deep sadnesses and... Um, and it's, it's, it is a bit of a trial if you're going through something like I particularly, the cancer journey. I particularly love the, um, they weren't there for that long, but the Geneva, do they go to Geneva? The scenes in Switzerland, yeah, yeah. which is, um, it, yeah, I, I, well, I was certainly howling when I, when I read that bit. So moving on from Mayflies, which you can get on SBS On Demand, and I thoroughly recommend the novel by Andrew O'Hagan. Um, Corrie, you have a recipe that I ate the other day and encouraged you to share with everyone. You did. Uh, this is from Ottolenghi Test Kitchen, Shelf Love. So this is the first version that the Test Kitchen put out. They've put out two cookbooks. This was the first one. And this is called Roasted Pepper Salad with Cucumber and Herbs. Caro, this is a salad. It was a little darker than I would have wanted. I probably wanted the colours to pop a bit more. Um but the tastes were incredible. And as I said to my daughter, Francesca, afterwards, it is the perfect thing. They do a bit of kebab or lamb on the barbecue or something. Don't, can't you imagine it? With the pita bread, with the salad, with a bit of yogurt and some lamb. Wouldn't it be fantastic? Yes. And, and also with chicken. No, I thought it was an absolutely delicious salad. So you just you just get the uh, four, depending on your quantities, but green peppers, red peppers, vine tomatoes, cut up a couple of um, red onions, add in a green chilli, uh, garlic, olive oil and lemon juice and throw that all on a baking tray and stick it in the oven, a hot oven, 230 degrees uh, centigrade. Um, I have this oven issue, so mine was a bit down from that. But you roast it for about 30 minutes until the vegetables are really um, quite soft. And then in a separate bowl, you toss cucumber with oil, um, salt and pepper and um, put the put the 
pepper, the pepper and tomato mixture in the bowl and top it with the cucumber, um, sprinkle it with all of the um, chili flakes and the um, coriander, parsley, lemon juice. And it was absolutely delicious. And it I was. just we talked about tomatoes the other day, and I just think the tomatoes at the moment are a good price, and they still look really terrific. So that would be a, a really good suggestion, I think, probably for um, something like Good Friday lunch. That was the roasted pepper salad with cucumber and herbs, as you pointed out, and it's from the Otto Lingi Test Kitchen shelf love. You did say you always look at these recipes and think, oh, they look so easy. It's always a bit more chopping than you think, isn't it? So there? much chopping. So, Carol, I always like to, before people come to lunch or dinner, I always like to have a rough kind of timetable in my head. And I thought, oh, that'll take half an hour to prepare. But like all Otolenghi recipes, you forget the chop, chop, chop. It was worth every chop. <laughs> it was worth all the dicing and slicing. I'm I glad. Have... That was um, BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Caro, you are grumpy. Something happened to me this morning that in 30, nearly 34 years of marriage has never happened to me before. I spilt an entire cup of hot tea all over me and my pyjamas in bed. Why married? Why has marriage got something to do with because that? Because you and I both agree that one of the things we most love about yes. being married is being brought a cup of tea in the morning. <laughs> in fact, when I've had a sleepover at your place when I've been in town, your husband has bought me in a cup of tea too. Are you all right? Well, it was... Well, clearly you're not in hospital. Brent, it was Brendan's turn because we alternate. He might Oh, say. do you know who used to do that? It was so lovely. They were married for over 50 years. <clears throat> Saninian and Lady Stephen, former Governor-General. And even when they lived at uh, Yarralumla in Canberra, they still made each other a cup of... I think they might have done coffee, but they take it in turns every single morning. His, hers, his, hers. Brendan might suggest that the ledger might be a bit more weighed in his favour more recently, but I reckon all in all we pretty much even out. So anyway, early start this morning... Brendan comes upstairs with the most perfect cup of tea. and I'm That would actually be the bit that would piss me off. <laughs> oh, exactly. I'm sitting up in bed chatting away because I get home late on Monday nights doing footy classified and we had lots to talk about, you know, our days the day before and a couple of plans we're making. And I don't know what happened, but suddenly this scalding burning all down my side, oh through my pyjamas, through... And the other thing was I had freshly made the bed before we went to Perth, so oh, the sheets are would, only one day old. That would make me cross. The losing the good cup of tea and pouring it over the sheets. Was the cause of this... Would her name happen to be Queenie? No, Queenie was not even in... Oh, she might have been in the room, but she was nowhere near us. Something... I just dropped it. And it went... It burnt me. It went all over the sheet. It went all over the topper underneath the sheet. We managed to quickly get out of bed. I took off all my pyjamas because I was burning, ripped the sheets oh. off, ripped the topper off. Brendan took the topper into the shower. Sheets are downstairs, you know, soaking. It was. And, you know, and the, then, of course, it's gone everywhere. So you'll be finding it's gone little, everywhere. You'll be finding tea for months on skirting boards. and It somehow managed not to go through to the mattress. But the nicest thing Brendan did, because you're absolutely right, I was thinking I was really enjoying that cup of tea. He said, here, I'll give you half of mine. So he half of his cup. And then I'll take you to the Burns unit at Into the Into mine. Oh, oh. Caro, that is terrible. Remember our friend Tanya, and this is a really good one for people who don't know about this, although I think the whole world does now. Plunger coffee, beware of. Oh, and our yes. friend Tanya, when she pushed it down and the hot, boiling hot coffee went all over her body. 
oh, Jane, just, you know, beware. I, I teach my children. I'm even teaching the grandchildren at an early age. It took two of us to actually carry the then completely soaked topper, which he'd done under the shower, downstairs to hang out anyway. Do you have any burn marks? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll report back in. I had to sort of then jump in a cold shower and leave the house very quickly. I'm, I seem to be all right now. But that made me pretty grumpy, Corrie. Now we're going to move on to six quick questions for Red Energy and you can kick us off. Where do you stand on James Packer? Look, did you watch him come back into the country for the first time in three years the other day? Last time I read an interview with him, he'd lost a lot of weight. He was off the medication. He'd talked about his bipolar disorder. Um, He was with his ex-wife, Erica, and their two children getting off some private plane. He's come back for a bit of a family holiday. I think he wants to be back living in Sydney sometime soon. Where do I stand on James Packer? He just had such great opportunity and such good people around him. You would have thought advising him, trying to help him. And, you know, obviously several broken relationships later and walking away from the Nine Network and all all that that stood for, I think was really disappointing. And I think it must be hard when you just inherit so much and you just have no hope of carrying on a legacy. Maybe he was never encouraged the way he should have been by his father. I don't know, but... Is this pity? Just disappointment. Oh, because you thought he was going to be great. Well, I thought he might have been at one point, you know, the saviour of the Nine Network. And he's and he's just he just let it all go. And I just think that's an enormous pity. And his mother, Rosalind, is such a lovely person and yeah. a great philanthropist too, and which I, leads us to our next question. And actually. I think his, his, his sister Gretel is too. <laughs> Corrie, should private donors fund staff positions at the National Gallery in Canberra? No, they should not. There should be a very clear delineation between church and state. It should be the Australian government of the day, their responsibility to fund staff. However, patrons should be sought after as should be sponsors. But I'm really agitated about this fact that apparently 26 staff, 26, are now being paid from the pockets of philanthropists because the rising costs and the budget cuts have made the gallery, our national gallery, so vulnerable. So when I read that story the other day, I was absolutely livid about the fact that um, governments are not doing what they're supposed to do. And, um, yeah, so anyway. Do you think it leads to conflicts? I think it can lead to conflicts, but I think also what happens when the donations dry up in that particular area. So curators, for example, might not feel secure or safe in building their particular parts of the collection because they don't know how long the gig's for. And you and I have been around long enough, Carol, we always know that the first department that gets the cuts is always marketing and PR, that sort of thing. I would feel very vulnerable if I was there and I was being supported by, um, by, by private philanthropy and not the government. Anyway, I was really cross about that story. Such but a beautiful gallery. Mum just came back recently from the Cressida Campbell exhibition, which was on. Did it's you know just it's finished. leaking? The roof has been leaking for decades. Decades. Did you know that? I didn't, Corrie. Um, now, Cara, what's the hottest act in the world right now and why do I care? Or do, do you care? Do I care? The haters going to hate, Corrie. Taylor Swift is by far the biggest act in the world at the moment. Yeah, totally. She's, she's coming to Australia. Gosh, welcome to the uh, panel. On the on the, the show, I think three and a half hours, for about, you know, I don't know how many costume changes, but many, more than a dozen costume changes. Um, I think 40 songs. The reason we care is because she's coming to the MCG in February. Mm. And could this reignite the debate? which we've seen just recently after Ed Sheeran, where 
um, the clubs or several clubs, or certainly Chris Scott, the coach of Geelong, made it quite clear the ground was not up to speed. Now the MCG is assuring people, I think the concert is probably going to be in early February, but it then fast forward to Pink, who's also got a big tour next year, and she's going to be at Marvel Stadium. We thought February, but now they've announced a stadium mid, uh, another concert mid-season. Hands off in our March. foot, hands off our footy ovals, guys. Well, I don't think there's any choice. I mean, obviously the Taylor Swift is going to be absolutely huge, but I look forward to the debate, Corrie. Maybe they could get her to play at the grand final as well, which um, hopefully they'll make a decision soon on when that's going to be played. Corrie, which new city development are you excited about? I am excited about the new Limeridian in Melbourne, which is called Lamour, Melbourne. Oh, it's such a bad name. Who came up with that? But at 20 Burke Street, Carol, do you remember there used to be a picture theatre there, up there, near the old um, yep. uh, fabric uh, fabric warehouse? Uh, yep. Fabric, was it called Fabric Warehouse? Job Warehouse. Job Warehouse. Yeah, it was yeah. it was a Hoyts, wasn't it? Uh, I think Hoyts, Hoyts was further down the road. Well, it was a village, village. city or, yeah. Anyway, the whole thing has been redeveloped over the past couple of years. Millions of dollars spent on it. They have developed a five-star Parisian-style hotel in the heart of Melbourne. And why would I really care? Because I live here. Would I ever stay here? On my Instagram account the other day, it popped up these amazing photos how beautiful is that roof garden with the – but it's right near – the other view of it is um, when you're looking east from the uh, pool. They've got a beautiful pool on the on the roof garden. Of course, it's uh, one of Melbourne's most beautiful buildings, which is the Parliament House, and the St. Patrick's Spire in the background. What an incredibly beautiful place to stay that would be. So is it going to be right next to Florentino? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, it sounds fantastic. Oh, I know. I was very excited. I'm glad you're excited too because I just thought, well, you know, Melbourne's getting such a bad rap. It's so nice to have a nice hotel. I don't know why it makes me feel good. Caro, where do you stand on booing at major sporting events? Look, I think the Adam Goods drama, disaster, tragedy, really, in a sort of sporting context and what it said about Australia and racism has changed booing forever for me. I mean, I don't know about you. I don't think I've ever actually sat there and gone boo to anything. May, you, oh, you're looking a bit tense. You have. Mm. But, I mean, do you boo the opposition? Do, do you boo in a bad umpiring decision? I don't I'd have done it so. with Will Glen Iris Gladiators under the 11s. No, I did oh, not Corrie, do that. You never would have. <laughs> Look, honestly, well, well, that's where Might it starts it? and that's where it's most terrible. I find it pretty reprehensible and, you know, we, it was a bit of an issue over the weekend because a young former North Melbourne number one draft pick who's now gone to Port Adelaide was booed by Collingwood supporters. No one really knows why. He didn't have a great game, so maybe that was part of it. But um, I just think it's it's a bit juvenile and it's a bit mean-spirited. And as the coach of Collingwood said, you pay your money, you do what you like, but we don't boo in our house. And I thought he was trying to send a message as part of this new cuddly, feely Collingwood that's trying to be ecumenical and get on with everyone. I just think it's a little bit juvenile. I don't really understand it. And I certainly think when it has racial overtones. Well, I was going to say the Jamara Eugle Hagen, I've got wind of what the comment was that was made by a supporter. And I hope they do get life banned from the game. But that was absolutely horrendous. Did you read the poem that um, his mother wrote for him? No, I didn't. Uh, Alice Ugall put a beautiful poem on Facebook just talking about how her son was racially discriminated against and what it means every time a white fella calls a black fella a certain word. So um, have a look at that. You can, everybody, on Facebook.
just completely reprehensible. And in the end, look, booing is not always about racism, but for me it always brings me back to that moment that the game failed Adam Goods. And, you know, he's never... He'll, he'll never come back to the game no. now. He goes to one footy game a year, which is part of a charity he looks after up in Sydney. That's the Go Foundation. Well, I think it's That's scary it. for kids. I remember when all the all the men would boo at the football over the other side of the fence because the women had to be on the other side of the fence at the MCG and the men would all boo. I used to get a bit scared. Yeah, the, well, the noise can, well, any noise at the MCG can be a bit daunting for a young person. Corrie, you have an amazing <coughs> fact. April Fool's Day, do you know where it came from? No, <laughs> I don't. Very well, timely fact. Uh, well, history historians have no idea either, Caro. This is what is so interesting. But there are lots of different theories, so you can really take your pick if you want. There's There are some historians who believe that it goes back to the ancient Roman festival of Hilaria, <laughs> which was held at the end of March, of course, because of, I guess it was weather-related. They were all coming out of their winter gloom. And people would come together to commemorate the resurrection of the god Attis. It was a celebration of renewal and revellers would dress up in disguises or imitate one another. There's another idea. It was a medieval celebration of the Feast of Fools where a mock bishop or pope was uh, elected and church customs were parodied. Oh gosh, they could have been thrown in the clink and had their heads cut off if they'd been too funny in that regard. In In 15... 61, there is a, an early first reference to April Fool's Day and it appears in a Flemish poem written by uh, Edouard de Dean. And in the poem, a nobleman sends his servant out on a series of wild errands. When the servant realises that it's a joke and he calls them fool's errands because the date that he was sent out to do these meaningless silly tasks uh, by his really mean boss was April the 1st. So over the years, of course, the tradition of um, pranks, pranking and um, making up fibs and all of that sort of thing has continued on newspaper, radio, TV stations. Some of the best um, have um, been in um, in 1905, a German newspaper wrote that thieves had dug a tunnel under the US Treasury and stolen $268 million in silver and gold, which caused a bit of a run on the US bank at the time. Another famous prank was in 1957 when the BBC aired a segment which showed Swiss harvesters picking spaghetti off trees, claiming that the region had had that year a particularly exceptional heavy spaghetti crop. I remember, I remember that hearing about. And that. people people started ringing their local nursery saying, "What's this spaghetti tree? I want one." I remember one year on 3AW in the early years of um, Ross Stevenson, they. Um, told people they'd worked out a way that you could smell what they were doing on radio and it would come into your house. They were I don't know if they were cooking sausages or what they were doing. And it went on for like half an hour anyway. Are people sleep do they not think, oh it's April first? Another in nineteen eighty six La Parisienne um uh, produced a story saying the Eiffel Tower was going to be dismantled and rebuilt inside the new Euro Disney Park. Well, you can imagine they went off about that. Um, but I think probably my um, my favourite one in 1987 in Norway, after reading that the government was planning to distribute 10,000 litres of wine confiscated from smugglers over the years, apparently hundreds of citizens turned up at Government House carrying empty bottles and buckets hoping to fill up their lot. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's just a bit of April foolery for you uh, for this week, of course, when April 1st arrives. 
I love April, the month of April. That was Don't Shoot the Messenger for another week. Thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy, and, of course, to Prince Wine Store. And, Corrie, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger on April Fool's Day. You know what might happen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.